Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Hey, well, another massive uh, good evening. And again, if this is your first time uh, visiting Suncoast, or maybe maybe this is um, your first time in a church. Man, it is so cool to have you here with us. And every month or so, we begin a, a new series, and this being kind of the lead up now to Easter, a new series, as you, as you obviously just heard, was is called The Crown. My name's Jono, and uh, along with Chloe, who just saw up here, um, the pastor here. And it's so cool to have you here, and I'm excited for this series. And as that, as that song just said, <laughs> you know, the, the truth is none of us really are ever going to be a royal, unless somehow you marry into some obscure uh, you know, royal family that's out there these days. There's a few of them out there. Um, you, I, mean, I know like some of the royals have kids now, but most people are probably too old in the building to marry any of those kids. So a good chance none of you guys are going to be royaled by birth or royal by, by married. But we do have our own version of crowns, right? We have things in our life that we pursue, that we value, that we see is really, really important. And these would be our crowns in life, things that we chase after, things that we want to achieve or things that we want to accumulate for ourselves. And so much of our lives, if we're honest, are taking up, are taken up by the things that we pursue in life, crowns that we are chasing after. And so, so you know, they take your pick. There's a million of them, right? I mean, for some of you, it might be money. And money can be the crown you're chasing and your, your career is set up that way. Um, um, your kind of pursuit, your goals in life. It's like, I want to get all the money. I want to get all the money. And that's, you know, that is a crown in life. People want to achieve that. Maybe for you, it's something to do with relationships. Perhaps for you, the crown is to one day get married and that will be your crowning glory. I want to find someone who wants to spend the rest of my life with me. And that is your like pursuit. Or, you know, maybe you're there, and but your, your goal is for your kids. You want to have great relationships with your kids one day, and you want to grow old with them, and you want your kids to still think you're cool even when you're 80, right? And that might be the crown that you're on. I certainly know that's the crown I'm after in my life. My kid doesn't even think I'm cool right now. I've got no hope. So, so whatever it might be, right, you have kind of the things you're chasing. Maybe it's something in your career. Maybe it's your nest egg. And so, you know, one day you can retire, and you can work, 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 work. And then not work any longer. And so that may be your idea of crown. Maybe it's just success or perhaps it's even health. And here's the thing. Most of these things in and of themselves are are brilliant. And and indeed, in many cases, they're worthwhile pursuits. But there's a risk. And the risk is with anything that we pursue in life, the risk is that anything we chase, we can lose. If you have to chase something, there's the potential that you might lose that thing you're chasing. And then if you get it, it's like, well, I've got it now. How do I keep it? And so a lot of these, a lot of these crowns that we can find ourselves chasing in life, there's always this risk that not only that we don't get them, but if we do get them, that we could eventually lose them. And this is one of the risks that we all in varying degrees will experience in life. In fact, I remember experiencing this in a dramatic way when I was in university. I must have been in third year, third year uni at the time. And there's one particular subject. There was uh, one of the subjects where I had an assignment that was worth about 50% of the whole subject. And so I spent about three months of studying and working on it and making sure it was going to be a last-ditch effort. So, you know, if I passed, if I got a good marks on the assignment, good chance I'd pass, you know, the whole, the whole subject. And so for several months, poured heaps into it. It was the night before it was due. I'll never forget this. I've pretty much still got post-traumatic stress from it. But I go into the library just to go over my last version of the draft, just make sure it's all good. It was, it was, it was uh, I think it was on like a Thursday night. USC, and 
I'm in the computer lab working on it, working on it, and I was like, yeah, no, this is, this is epic. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to switch off. I'm going to go home, get an early night. I'll come back in tomorrow morning, and I'll print it out, and I'll put it in the pigeonhole. And I don't know if that, that thing even exists anymore at university campus. You probably all send things online or that back in the older days, we'd print things out. So, so anyway, do they still do that? Great. Thanks, everyone. You're awesome. So, so anyway, so I, I, I close in the computer. I save my work, head out, grab a, grab a drink from a bubbler, and I was like, what am I doing? I don't even have to be on campus tomorrow. Why don't I just print it out now, put it in the pigeonhole tonight, and then, you know, then I don't have to come in tomorrow morning. It's all sorted. So I go back in. The library is closing in about 10 minutes. So I go back to my computer, open it up, and I look, and I look, and I look, and I cannot find it anywhere. So I start panicking because I'm like, I've been working on this assignment for three months and it's worth about 50% of this subject. So I'm like hacking it. So I go and find the tech guy. There's a tech guy behind the booth. And I'm like, bro, you've got to help a brother out, man. I, 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 like, I swear I've been saving my work, but I cannot find it. So he's like, okay. And he's a bit annoyed because he's like, you can see he was shutting things down and wanted to close the library. But he comes over, he checks my computer and asks, you know, where did you save things? I'm like, I saved it here and I got it from there. And he's looking at it and goes, but I've got bad news for you. I'm like, don't tell me. And he goes, man, it's gone. I'm like, no, this is due tomorrow. I've been working on this for three months. I was like, come on, mate. You're a professional tech guy. Surely you're a hacker, right? Surely you know how to hack things. And he goes, man, if there's something there, I can hack it, but I can't hack something that's not there. And I was like, no. And so needless to say, I had to settle. I'll never forget it. I took a deep breath. I went and got another drink from the bubbler. I stretched. I went to a computer lab and I pulled an all-nighter because it was all fresh in my brain. I read the whole thing out that night, right? But it, it just illustrated to me how we can chase things and work so hard at things. But just like that, the things that we chase in life, those achievements or crowns, there's always a risk that we can lose them. So we'll spend our whole lives either chasing down to gain a crown or when we get them to try and secure the crown. But one way or another, we have these crowns we're chasing. Now, Jesus too, Jesus himself had crowns that he also came to receive, but not in the way you'd think. Not in the way you think. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look through this series, The Crown, and how through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we now have the chance to view our crowns in life in maybe in a different light. And maybe there's things you're chasing after. Maybe your goals in life and maybe your priorities in life. Maybe in light of what Jesus has done for us, perhaps he's going to give us an insight to how we can go about chasing the crowns that indeed we find ourselves chasing in life. So what I'm going to do to kick this series off, I'm going to look at one particular story that happened on the, uh, the last night of Jesus' life. It was a few hours before uh, Jesus was arrested and subsequently crucified the next day before, obviously, his resurrection. So this is a really, really pertinent, uh, pertinent part in the story of Jesus. And kind of the background here, he'd been with his disciples for about three years. He was now sharing a meal with them in an upper room. And uh, this is where we pick up the story. John writes this account. John was one of his disciples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you've never kind of read your Bible before, it's one of the first four books of the New Testament. And he writes his account to what he saw that night on Jesus' last night on earth. Let's check out what he wrote. It was just before the Passover festival. And this was a festival that Jews had been celebrating up until that point for a couple of thousand years. And still to this day, it's still a festival that Jews celebrate. Um, it was just before the Passover festival. And Jesus, this is really important, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So he knew what was coming. He knew his time had come upon him. He'd been um, telling his disciples, listen, guys, soon, soon, I'm going to be laying my life down for you, but don't threat, don't threat, because 
Three days later, I'm going to be risen from the dead. Amazing stuff. But it's like they had selective hearing. And if someone was predicting their own death and resurrection, how seriously do you take them, right? So they really didn't pay attention to him. But he knew this was the moment. He knew this was the night. He knew he was about to be arrested. And so what we see happens was in light of what he knew was about to happen. Um, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things. What things? All things. Everything. All might. All dominion. All power. All people. The Father had put all things under Jesus' authority and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. Now, before we look at what Jesus did in this moment, right, where he, he became aware that he had all authority in the whole earth, everything was under his authority. Before we look at what Jesus did when he knew that was the case, I want to put it back on you and I. If you found yourself in this position where you had all authority, where you were the most powerful person in any room you walked into, what would you do? And I know that's a weird question to get your head around because how often do we experience something to that degree? So let me put it in a way that maybe we'll understand. Let's say your name's Aladdin and you come across a, what are they called? A lamp and you, a genie comes out and you get three wishes. What is going to be the nature of your wishes? Are you going to be wishing for things that are just for you? Are you going to be wishing things for the world around you. So in the same token, if you were like Jesus and you became aware that all authority had been placed into your hands. Now, here's the thing. You know, we put, we'll never be in that situation in life, but you and I have chances where things are under our authority. You and I are all in positions of influence in one degree or another where there are decisions that you have the chance to make and it can affect people around you. So you, you can kind of relate to one degree or another, but if you had all authority, what would you do? Let me put the question to you this way. If you got everything that you desired, would the world be better off? If you got everything you wish for in life, would the world be better off for it? Well, let me put it another way to you, particularly if you're a Christian here, but this can apply to anyone. If God answered every one of your prayers, would his kingdom come? And would his will be done? Or would your kingdom come and your will be done. And he, what's amazing is history has repeatedly shown us a pattern. This is, this is super important for us to understand, not just for tonight and not just for this series, but in life, history has repeatedly shown us a pattern that every time there's been a government or a ruler or a kingdom with all authority and had all might and dominion under their rule, there has been a pattern of what people in those situations or or, or bodies of people have done in situations like that. And this isn't a mystery. So when we look at what would happen if someone had all authority of a nation under them or all authority of people, it's actually not a mystery to us. It's history because this pattern has repeated itself time and time and time again. Here's what we find. People who have all authority, unchecked authority, unchallenged authority. They will leverage their authority. They will use their authority to control people, to get what they want. And and again, if you're a student of history here, you'd probably have to explain this way better than me, but there's a common pattern of what people with all authority will do. They will make promises. And the two main promises are this. This is what, you know, all through history, ancient history, modern history have done. Through the promise of full stomach, so promise that you will get fed, and the promise of security, that you will be kept safe. They are the promises that, you know, people in rulership will give on one condition. You have to give up your freedom. So if you give up your freedom... You'll have a full stomach and you'll be able to put your head on your pillow at night safe from, safe from danger, right? And this has been the promise throughout all of history. Again, this isn't a mystery what people do if they go to authority. This is history. Now, what is worthwhile knowing that for 
is these are the three, these areas right here about, you know, what governments and authorities and all through history, these are the major areas that Jesus himself was tempted with on his very, at the very beginning of his ministry. Now we're looking at this story tonight about, you know, the last night of Jesus' life and last night of Jesus' ministry. But the gospel accounts tell us about what happens at the start of Jesus' ministry. Before he preached any message or any sermon or healed any person or performed any miracle, the gospel accounts tell us about a one-on-one encounter that he had with the tempter. There was a showdown in the desert between Jesus and Satan. And I'd love to call it his nemesis, but that would denote the idea that they were equals and they were not. But yet he was the tempter. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights alone in the wilderness. And at his most vulnerable and most weak, the devil meets him. And the three areas, it's so fascinating. And keep your ears peeled, right? Because this is you'll see a pattern here. The areas Jesus was tempted in was this. The first temptation he was tempted with was to take stones and to miraculously turn them into bread. Odd, right? Take stones and turn them into bread. The second thing he was tempted with was to throw himself off a tall building and and uh, with the confidence knowing that he won't be injured, he won't be harmed, and, or, or, and he won't die. And the third was if he would give up his freedom or his allegiance and worship Satan, that Satan would give him all the authority in the planet who have all the glory of all the kingdoms of the world. And to each one of those temptations, Jesus refused them all. And what's fascinating is these are the very dynamics and very things that, again, um, you know, rulers and governments and kingdoms throughout all of history have leverage when they have had all authority. They've promised the people under them, we will feed you and we will keep you safe, right? No danger, no danger will come. We'll protect you, we'll protect you. And all you have to give us is to fall down and give us your freedoms. And then, you know, you'll be able to have the glory of our kingdom. But Jesus refused it. And this is the important, to know, this is the, the whole point of this, okay? Jesus refused any of life crowns without the burden and responsibility of the cross. He was tempted with the opportunity to have all the great crowns in life. Like, can you imagine that? Never been hungry, never been in danger and having all, all the glory of the world. Yet he, his face was set on the cross. He refused to receive any of them without going through the process of getting to the cross. He refused it. And any crown and any ambition, all the things Jesus indeed came to achieve, he refused any of them if it wasn't through the path of the cross. He refused the best parts of being human without the bad parts, right? He was offered the chance to make food, right? But without having to go through the bad parts of planting seed and feeling hunger. He was offered the chance of experiencing great danger without any true risk to his own safety, right? These are the best parts, but without any of the bad parts. He refused to take a shortcut because for Jesus, the crown and the cross went together. And this is so important to understand about who we're singing about and who we talk about and who we follow in Jesus. He saw the crown and the cross as going hand in hand. He refused to compel belief and he refused to take the shortcut. And why this is worth noting, again, I'm comparing the way Jesus ruled to how, how kingdoms of the world have ruled. All throughout history, empires have used violence, have used the tip of a sword or the end of a gun or torture or worse. In fact, they've even used religion to try and force obedience and to try and compel obedience. But God never operated like the governments and empires and kingdoms of the world. He refused to force anyone to believe in him. He refused to dazzle people with a magic trick or to, or to force his authority in people to do it because I said so and I am God. He refused to operate how worldly rulers have always operated. God chose a different path. And this is so, so cool to note that, God, and you have to understand is Jesus, 
He did not force any authority from the top down. His goal was to always build it from the inside out. His goal was never, like the like secular ruler, was to try and convince his rulership and to, to push his rulership through violence or manipulation or superstition down on people and to try and convince people of his rulership. His goal was to build his authority from the inside out. Now that might sound peculiar, right? Because that doesn't even make sense. That's right. Because only Jesus has ever done it this way. And this is why throughout all of history, um, the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and ultimately what Jesus accomplished through the cross and through his resurrection, it's been called something. There's been a word for it. And right since the first century followers of Jesus, the word for everything Jesus taught and everything Jesus accomplished in his life has been referred to as the gospel. The gospel, which is the Greek term meaning good news. This is really important to note because at the time where this, um, this term was, can we have that slide up? Because it's important to note. So the, the idea of this being good news, that term gospel, it was actually flogged. It was stolen from Rome. So um, the first time we see this term gospel used, uh, particularly in antiquity and ancient writings, was referring to Caesar, who lived at the time of Jesus, funnily enough. He was born around the Caesar at the time of Jesus, was born around the same time as Jesus. And when Jesus was doing his ministry, he was alive at that time. And as a way of kind of, again, imposing Roman rule on their subjected nations, subjected peoples, to use superstition, they referred to uh, Caesar as a son of God to say that he was divine and, and that his rulership was what was known as good news or the gospel because, and follow this, because he promised to feed people and he promised to keep people safe in exchange for their freedom. As long as they stayed good people, obeying Roman law and Roman rule, the Rome promised that they would have food and that would be protected. You're seeing a pattern here, right? And this is referred to as good news. But the first followers of Jesus, this is so important to understand. They stole that because they recognized, hang on, this isn't good news. We're slaves under Rome. We're forced into obedience under Rome. We have to do what they say at the tip of a sword. That's not good news. That's fear-mongering, right? This is violence. But what they found in Jesus was something so much better than a full stomach. And what they found in Jesus was something so much better than a good night's sleep and feeling safe and protected by a military army. Something they found in Jesus was so good that they said, this is the true good news. This is truly the news you're, good, you're looking for because it's not going to cost you your freedom. It's the opposite. The message of Jesus will give you your freedom. And this was such a radical news because being a follower of Jesus in the first century was not safe. Make no mistake about it. To be a follower of Jesus in the first century Okay, and if you're new to church, you go, why are you referring to the first century? Because the first century began after the life of Jesus. So Jesus died and was resurrected, and then a new century began around about that time. So that's, they're the first followers of Jesus around in the first century. So to be a follower of Jesus in the first century, particularly where it began in Israel, you were sandwiched between all the rule and the power and the intimidation of the Jewish temple and everything that it uh, represented, and you're sandwiched between that and the Roman Empire with all of its violence. So this small little new faith that was just so tiny in terms of numbers should never have survived. But the followers of Jesus found something in Christ that, was, that gave them more boldness and more courage than a shield could, than a sword could, than an army could. It gave them more hope and confidence than a full stomach could. They were like, what we have found in Jesus, the hope we have found in Jesus, the life we have found in Jesus is the true good news, right? And so they branded this term. Oh yeah, I, thank you. I think it's worth cupping for too. Now, I can't help. I look at that and go, am I missing something? Like when they had everything pointed against them, 
they, were, they found something through faith in Jesus that was unlike anything else. And I, I often self-reflect and go, man, sometimes my faith can be rattled by the smallest thing. If I like, if the building's too cold, or if I don't like the music, God, you know, where are you? You know, like, like I mean, pe- people, like their lives are in the balance, but they're all like following Jesus is better than anything else. And I look, and we've seen this, this, this idea and this conviction and this life change happen all through history, not just in the first century. The first four centuries were hectic for the followers of Jesus. But then, heck, even around the world today, in many nations of the world, it is costly to be a follower of Jesus. Yet in those environments where people have the most to lose for being a follower of Jesus, it's like they tap into something about Jesus, that He really is good news. And I'm telling you, if your trust and your hope is in people or in a government or in your money, remember everything that you chase, there is the risk of losing. But there is one person you can put your trust in who will never let you down, who will never forsake you. And he is consistent and faithful yesterday, today, and forever. You can trust Jesus. And this is why it is called the good news. And think about today in light of everything happening in the world, my conviction is that Jesus, he's still good news. And what Jesus offered was not a promise of a life without death or a life without threats or a life without viruses. But what he did promise was that of life inwardly in the middle of a world where there's death externally. He promised that you would know a hope and a life and a promise that was from the inside that nothing else in the world could offer. And again, trying to get my head around that, because that sounds extraordinary. I often like read back through history and find how people have faced difficult times or turbulent seasons or uncharted waters in terms of human history. How have people found resource and hope in faith? And if you've heard me speak any amount of time, you'd have heard me quote this next author so many times simply because I've been reading his material on a weekly basis for about a decade now. And so he helps to frame a lot of my worldview. And it's C.S. Lewis. And many of you will be familiar with his writings, uh, whether it's fictional writings or theological or even philosophical writings. And I love some of his stuff that he wrote during World War II because at that time, um, a lot of people were lost. They looked at the violence that mankind was showing one another and they were questioning humanity. They were questioning life. They were questioning their faith. And so he spoke a lot into those uh, those really tense moments in human history. And so a lot of the stuff he wrote about then and he'd do talkback radio during that time, or at least he did radio broadcast during that time, I should say. Amazing stuff. But what I want to read tonight happened just after World War II. It was, when the, it was during the Cold War era. And it was just after the world, the whole world saw the footage of what happened when the atomic bombs were dropped on those two cities in Japan. And to see destruction on a scale that mankind had never seen before, as you can imagine, the fear and the worry, and then all of a sudden you had two major superpowers who were pointing these missiles at each other. There was heavy anxiety and heavy fear. And during that atomic, as they called the atomic, you know, the Cold War era, the atomic age, the atomic threats, during that moment, what I'm going to read here is exactly how C.S. Lewis spoke into this, that kind of tension. And, and you know, we, we, we've got more atomic bombs today than ever before. We don't always hear people talking about that and fearful of it, right? But they're there more than ever. So why don't you just place the word atomic bombs in this passage for maybe, I don't know, a virus, whatever you want, whatever's on your mind, okay? But here's the passage. He said, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. Am I right? Again, replace atomic bomb with, you know, something else. 
How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why? As you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Encouraging stuff, right? Or indeed, as you already are living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. It goes on. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, or World of Warcraft, the Call of Duty, whatever you play. But the game is out there. Chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. Doesn't that sound good? Not huddled together like frightened sheep thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. Any microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. How about that? (laughs) And this was written back in 1947. But this gives you an indication of when you learn to put your trust in Jesus, you start viewing the world completely differently because you recognize you have a hope that isn't brought to you from the outside world and things have to be all together outwardly. It's a hope that God builds in your life inwardly. It's an amazing thing. So, so Jesus knew that all authority had been given to him. Now, what did he do? Let's find out. got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, which had been his rabbi's robe, which represented his rulership over those who he was leading. And he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. If you've been in church, for any amount of time, you'd have read this story probably a hundred times over. You certainly would have heard me teach on this before. And so sometimes the, the, the gravity of what took place here can be lost on us. So lend me your ears for 30 seconds while I try and explain it. And if this is the first time you've heard this story, this is going to blow your mind. So stay with me. Or at least I hope it does. That's, I've just sold it real big then, haven't I? But, um, in the Middle East, because here's a, 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 a foot washing scenario here. The world isn't like we've got now with all our enclosed shoes, right? Um, in the ancient world, you have sandals at best, if not barefoot. And there were no paved roads. Roads were dirt. Humans and animals shared the same walking path. Does this give you an idea of what the average person's foot would have looked like? Now, to give you an idea, if I just walk outside for five minutes before going to bed, Chloe will make me wash my feet before coming into bed and dirtying our sheets. And I'm like, there's nothing on my foot. It's like pure clean. Like there's nothing. She's like, it's dirty, it's filthy, wash it. Okay. So I'm so sorry. They came out so aggressive. You're not aggressive. Okay. 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 <laughs> um, but but imagine this. Okay. So 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 feet feet in the Middle East, two thousand years ago, where this took place, were disgusting. They were filthy. And so the role of foot washing, number one, was your responsibility because ain't nobody be touching your feet. 
But if someone did, the role of a foot washer was reserved for one kind of person alone, a slave. And to give you a greater sense of the gravity in Israel in the ancient world, because that would have been the world over, but in Israel, the role of foot washing was seen as so low and so degraded that if you were a Jewish slave, if you were a a, a slave in Israel of Jewish descent, a fellow Israelite would have not have forced you to even wash their feet because they thought it was below any Jew. A foreign slave, you can go go for it, but Jewish slaves, not even you guys. Like It was the lowest activity ever. And yet here was Jesus. Knowing that all authority on earth was now his. And the first thing he does is take off his robe, put a servant's towel around his waist, grabs a bowl of water, grabs the most filthy feet on the planet, and cleans them. The man with all authority in the world does the role of a servant. And what's incredible is, again, history has shown us men and women and rulers and authorities that have had authority, they've used their power to serve themselves. But Jesus, by contrast, laid down his authority to serve us. It's remarkable. One single act, Jesus reversed the role of power, the role of authority, the right of a crown, and he turned the world on its head. He would not abuse his authority to coerce people into following him. He refused to. He would not leverage his power to compel belief beyond a doubt. Now, let me make that statement again, because this is super important, I think, for us to understand. Jesus refused to leverage his power to compel belief beyond a doubt. He chose the cross. He refused to dazzle people to belief through miracles. Now, this is why this is important, okay? If you're anything like me, maybe you're not even a believer in God here, but you probably prayed a prayer like this at least once in your life. It's like, because you're here in church, I'm assuming you're curious, right? So, so you've gone, dear God, okay, like I really want to believe, but I'm having problems believing. I've got a few doubts. If you would just, if you would just, I don't know, like, Do something right now that just proves to me you're real. Then I won't doubt anymore. Then I won't doubt anymore. Just, just, I don't know, show me your face in the sky or make a bird fly in front of me. I don't know, do something. And then I'll believe without it. I didn't pray to pray like that. Like, God, just give me something to prove belief beyond a doubt. Here's the thing. Jesus valued your freedom so much. He refuses to do anything that would take away your freedom to choose to believe. Because taking away freedom to choose to believe is not the belief that Jesus ever desired. He refused to coerce anyone into believing in him from dominating his authority from the top down. He wanted to build it from the inside out. And he recognized the only way to win the crown of the hearts of people was to serve them, not to force it, not to threaten people, not to do the way other kings and rulers have done, but to serve people. He won't even take away your right to choose. And many people are complaining, God, you've made it too easy for us to doubt. He would say back to you, yes, because I love you enough. I don't want to take your right to choose. Heck, you'll see this in the narrative throughout all the gospels. If you read it for yourself, often when Jesus, this is amazing, when Jesus would do um, some of the most profound miracles, like the kind of miracles that you would go, 
okay, I believe forever and ever and ever. That's amazing, right? One of the most remarkable ones were um, Jesus took the lunch of a young guy, had a couple of bits of fish and bread, and threw like literally a handful of food. He fed thousands of adults, thousands of people. Amazing. And the, the New Testament tells us that at that moment, all the people that were there, they tried to forcibly take him and make him king. Now, wouldn't you do that? If you're in the ancient world, food was hard to come by. You couldn't just open the fridge and there was food, right? You weren't guaranteed food every single day. And all of a sudden, here comes this man that can feed you endlessly. You will be our king. The scriptures tell us that Jesus would not commit himself to the crowd and he bolted and ran away. It's like there was this reluctancy for him to find himself ruling people because he dazzled them by his miracles. Jesus refused to force his rulership from the top down. He refused to leverage his power to compel belief. So yet he chose the way of a servant. And this is how the story finishes up. He begins to wash their feet. And he came to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, and he, this term Lord denotes exactly how Peter viewed him. He saw him as God in the flesh, as his God, as his master, as the king of kings. He said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you understand because, because Jesus knew. And just remember, this is all in light of what Jesus knew was about to happen. This was just to be illustrative of what Jesus was ultimately going to do on the cross. What Jesus was doing on the cross wasn't simply washing people's feet. It was washing away the sins of the world, right? So he's saying to him, listen, you won't understand this, but in a few hours when you see me bleeding from a cross, you'll understand what I was pointing to right now. But Peter's reply to him was, no, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless it's me, unless it's I that wash you, you have no part with me. We see here an awkwardness that I think we would all relate to if we were in Peter's shoes. I don't say he wasn't wearing shoes though, was he? But you get the idea. We could relate to Peter in this stance because you know, none of us would have a problem being served. Like, heck, if you've ever had a pedicure, anyone here have a pedicure? How good are pedicures, allegedly? Brian, you put up your hand. It's not weird at all. So, so it's not. It feels great. So, so we don't mind, right? We don't mind getting served, but sometimes we, we are a bit mindful of who's doing the serving. And for Peter, I mean, these guys wouldn't have owned slaves. These guys most likely would have never had their foot washed by anybody. Ain't nobody going near their feet. So they weren't complaining. Heck yeah, getting the foot washing service, but not by you, not by the king, not by God. And this is like a, an awkward kind of tension that we feel about how do we relate to what God has done for us. And I remember seeing this illustrated a number of years ago. Chloe and I were living and working in London and a, there's a, uh, a shopping chain over there called Primark. It sells a lot of uh, great clothes, but they're known for cheap clothes. And what came out was there's often been a bit of criticism that they'd been doing a lot of their, uh, their factories were horrible working conditions. And in Bangladesh particularly was where a lot of their clothes were, were, were made. And then while we're living there, um, there started to be all these clothes come out on the shelves and people started taking pictures that what seems to be from the working factory, people started embroidering messages into the clothes they were making. And we've got a picture here of one of them. This was literally in a, uh, the back, knitted into the back of a jacket, uh, a clothing item found on the shelf in this Primark store. Degrading sweatshop conditions. 
And it was a whole string of these. And like the whole nation all of a sudden stops and goes, oh my gosh. And they looked at the, where all their clothes came from. And here's, here's the thing. People are stoked to get cheap clothing. Like who doesn't like getting clothing for a good deal, right? As long as we don't know where it came from. As long as we kind of close our eyes and close our ears. I don't want to know if they're degrading. But all of a sudden it got exposed that this was unjust. And this, the way we got some cheap clothing was because it was cheap labor, right? And so it became really, really awkward. And this is kind of the same vibe that Peter would have been feeling here. He didn't mind being served as long as it was by the right person under the right conditions. But Jesus said back to Peter, if it's not me, if I don't wash you, if I don't serve you, if I don't lay my life down for you, this was Jesus' concern. He said, you have no part with me. Jesus' concern wasn't their hygiene or that they had clean feet. Jesus' concern was that they would have a part with him that they would have a chance to be in relationship with Him. And His concern is still the same for you and I today. It's that through Him serving us, you and I would have a chance to be in relationship with Him. And here's the point. Jesus doesn't offer any crown apart from Himself. Anything that you could wish of God, anything you could want in life, anything that you could desire in life, all the things that you see as crowns, that this is what I'm believing for and this is what I'm hoping for. Everything Jesus offers, He never offers anything apart from Himself. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from Himself because it is not there. Such a thing does not exist. The true hope and peace and protection and comfort that you and I so look for in life is found in Christ. And it's on the other end of Christ serving us. And here's often the temptation or the danger, I should say, is that we can often want the gifts of God, all the things that we could get from God, His peace, His protection. Maybe that's why you're here tonight. God, I'm needing some comfort. I'm worried and anxious. And indeed, God has comfort and protection and love and forgiveness to give in grace loads. But people often want the gifts of God, but not the gift of God. But there is no gifts of God separate from the gift of God. Every gift that God wants to give you is found in Himself. So Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to have part with me. And if you don't let me serve you, you'll miss out on what I've got for you. We don't get the gifts of God by working for it or earning for it or striving for it or deserving it. We, a gift by its very nature is unworked for. If you have to work for it, it's not a gift, it's a wage. But a gift by its very definition is freely given. And we get every gift from God freely. But you've got to receive it. And Peter's like, I don't know if I can receive. My feet are dirty. This is awkward. And sometimes that can be our response to acknowledging what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's like someone died for my sins, but man, I I don't know if my, like I'm not a bad person, but I don't know if someone should die for me, particularly not God, particularly not a person who's perfect, who's sinless. It can be this often awkwardness to let Jesus serve us. But here's what I want to encourage you to do as we launch this series. is We need to make a decision to choose, to choose to put our trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And if you're curious about where your hope can come from and where your courage, particularly in this season, can come from, where your joy can come from, where your protection can come from. As a Christian, we put our trust that everything we're after in life has been accomplished for us already on the cross. 
And our feet are dirty and need washing. Our lives are often dirty and need washing. And God willingly wants to offer you to be washed and clean and free and whole. And all of that is found in the gift of God. So here's my question I want to leave us with tonight. What do we do from here? Where do we take this? Here's my question. What opportunities do you have in your life that you too can leverage to better serve the world? Jesus had these amazing opportunities and he took the opportunities he had to serve the world. So what opportunities do you have? The relationships you have, the giftings you have, maybe the experiences you have in life. Maybe you're someone who has a demeanor or a personality just lifts up a room. People are going to need you right now, right? When people are fearful and scared, they need someone who's quick to point the good in the world. Maybe you're someone who has means or resources. One of the things we're going to be asking you to do, um, if you've got the, the space and margin in your life, people are going to be needing if they're isolated and alone in their homes. We want people to, be able to deliver food and help people. Like There's a million things that the church is going to be able to do to resource and serve people. If you have the means and if you have the opportunity, how can you leverage them to better serve the world? In other words, maybe you've got a huge stock of toilet paper at home. How can you leverage that to better serve the world? God, we're grateful. We're so grateful you love us. We're so grateful you, oh man, that you've, uh, you freely offer us the gift of yourself that we get the chance to be part of. And I just believe that every person here tonight, wherever they're at in uh, their life right now, however they're responding to this season, that in the middle of it, they would see Jesus so clearly so authentically. I pray for encouragement over hearts that may be discouraged. Help us to be people who live as Jesus followers, who live as people of the light, maybe in a world that's seeing a lot of darkness. I pray for those here tonight that maybe don't know the hope of Jesus. I pray tonight that their hearts will be open to just how much they are loved. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.